Amen. So let's read from Luke chapter 2, very familiar portion of Scripture that many of you will have heard at Christmas programs. Uh, the Bible says Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Um, everyone had to go to their own native city for a census. Historians tell us that these census uh, for taxes and military service were done every 14 years. And so this was a time for them to go back to their native place. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Let's turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. The context of Jesus' birth needs no introduction in a Christian church. The context of this particular passage of Scripture that I'll be reading is that there was a lawyer who asked Jesus, what do I need to do and what's the important commandments? And Jesus said, you love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Um, and then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer being a lawyer says, well, who's my neighbor? He's kind of bracketing his obligation as lawyers do. And Jesus told this story in verse 30. Certain man went out from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is Luke 10 and 30. Fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Everybody say half dead. Half dead. Okay. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, a certain man, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. Everybody else is passing by, but the Samaritan's got compassion. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of it. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Today's sermon is a tale of two innkeepers. A tale of two innkeepers. Jay, would you lift your voice and ask the Lord to bless his word today and our hearing of it? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time and the church said you may be seated when jesus comes through our door he brings an opportunity to minister to those he has found who need help he's offering us the opportunity to partner with him in bringing reconciliation and restoration to a broken world we have an invitation today at arlington united to partner with the lord in the ministry of reconciliation. I want to say that again because I want that to sink into your spirit today. God has chosen you 
as a potential partner, an angel investor, if you will, if you will, in his work of reconciliation. God can do all things by himself, yet he has chosen to condescend to work through and for human beings. And we can be part of that process. And that's the point of our two texts today. It's notable that this first appearance of Jesus at a doorframe is in less than ideal circumstances. In Luke chapter two, we find Jesus um, in front of a door, but it won't be the last time he's positioned outside a door awaiting entry. And that's the point of today's sermon. In fact, one of the last things that Jesus utters to his church through his apostle John in Revelation 3 and 20 is that this is his posture. He stands at the door and he knocks and he's waiting to see Alexander if he will be welcome. Jesus is a gentleman. In this age of grace, in this dispensation of the church, in this opportunity time of the gospel, God does not steamroll us. He offers us an invitation to not only receive him, but to receive his work and his power and what he wants to do through us. It's not just what he wants to do in us that is of paramount importance, but also what he wants to do through us. God has come to be for us, but he's also come to work with us in reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Picture it. There's the donkey. There's the lady, the little teenage girl. She's pregnant. She's not married. She's an unwed teenage mother. She's a stranger from another province, an immigrant, if you will, from Galilee. Galilee was a province that was looked down on as being country people. You see this come through the text in Acts chapter 2 when the disciples were speaking in other languages. And the, the Hellenistic Jews from around the Mediterranean basin said, aren't these all Galileans? And yet they're speaking in other languages because they looked at them with disdain because they were typically fishermen or carpenters. They were working class people. They weren't educated people. And so they knew it was a miracle that they would be speaking in all these different languages. And you see there this prejudice toward Galileans. And as the door is knocked on and Joseph stands there and he's got money to pay. They've been on an 80 mile journey from Nazareth and Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea. And he's there with his bride-to-be. He's betrothed to her. And rather than having her put to death for uh, a supposed sin, he believes what the angel has said to him, that this birth was an extraordinary birth, that it was not the result of sin, but rather the result of supreme righteousness, that Mary had yielded herself and her body to be used as a vessel of the Holy Spirit to bring forth God enrobed in flesh to redeem Humankind. And Joseph is standing there with this somewhat awkward situation. And they've been traveling. And in my mind, they're weary. I, I don't know if you've ever spent any time with a lady who is at term pregnancy. But those of you who are married and your wife has had children, you can probably testify that you've heard it's an uncomfortable experience. For those of you ladies that have delivered children, I have nothing but respect. And you can understand this story more easily than the rest of us. But if I had to travel 80 miles on a donkey, whether I was pregnant or not, it would be a rough night and I'd be ready to rest. And so Joseph is standing there and he says, hey, you know, this is my West Tennessee translation. You got a room? Now, in the Middle Eastern uh, era and antiquity, there were these inns and they're, they're called Khan, K-H-A-N. And, and, and they were basically courtyards and there was a central place and then... There were little booths arranged around these courtyards and you could have 
the innkeeper would have fodder for the animals and they would have a place for you to stay. It's sort of like a shelter or a, a lean-to or a, a booth. And, and so this is what people were utilizing. And the innkeeper says, you know, um, we don't have room. We, we don't have uh, a place for you. And so it winds up that Jesus is born in a food trough designed for animals. Please note that the inn was not just a place of business. The innkeeper typically lived in the con that he was taking care of. It was the innkeeper's home. I want to pause right here in the middle of this text and I want to make a point that I hope is sealed to your spirit today. And that is the opportunity to be part of the work of Christ doesn't happen mostly at the temple, but it happens mostly in your workplace and it happens mostly in your neighborhood. We gather here on Sundays for an hour, but there are 167 other hours in your week. And so the work of God is lifted up and acclaimed in this place, but the work of God is not specifically done in this place in terms of the lion's share of what God wants to do in your life. The lion of the tribe of Judah is at work in us and he wants to be at work in our homes and in our families and our businesses, not just in the church house. In the Near Eastern culture of antiquity, to stand there in front of a family that was in need, who had been traveling, and to say there's no room for you, Scott, would have been unthinkable to refuse a traveler hospitality. Hospitality in Near Eastern culture in the times of antiquity was much more important than it is to us today. Today we value privacy and individualism and autonomy. And yet in this society, it was critical that people were hospitable to each other because on the roads, there were robbers. And in the woods, there were wolves. And so it was important, Sheila, that people be able to rely on one another. And you find this in the Bible where people would just show up and be in the square. And, and there was a story where in Judges where a man said, oh, please don't stay in the square. I've, I've, got, I've got food for your horse and, and I'll take you in. And so complete strangers were taken in because this was part of Near Eastern culture that you were supposed to take care of those who were on the road. You find this in classic works of literature such as Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey where entire wars and, and controversies start because people were not hospitable to one another. And you, you know, in our world, you think, well, just get on Facebook and tell them, you know, give them a, a thumbs down emoji or something. That's not the way this Near Eastern culture worked. Everybody was supposed to take care of one another. So Jim, for that innkeeper to stand there and say, there's no room for you, was a serious affront to this family, this little family that was traveling, in my mind, through the night, 80 miles, looking for a place. Mary, no doubt, had already started her contractions. She's been riding, they're exhausted. This little immigrant family, this little unwed mother, and Jesus is standing there, if you will, in, in the person of, of an in utero fetus, and the innkeeper didn't recognize what he was turning away. See, Jesus is like that. He doesn't present himself in his resurrected glory. If, if, if Jesus revealed to us today all of his glory and all of his magnificence, We'd be like the Apostle John who saw him in Revelation 1 and his voice was like many waters and thunders and his, his hair was like wool and his face was like brass. And 
and, 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 and like fire and, and, and John fell down on his face and he worshiped the Lord. And so Jesus presented all of his glory to us. No one but a fool would turn him away. But Jesus sometimes disguises his glory in a different opportunity. And people, people in their pride often miss the opportunity to minister in a situation because they don't understand exactly what Jesus is presenting to them. The end may have indeed be full. I mean, hotels hang out no vacancy signs, right? I'm not faulting the innkeeper for running out of room. But if it had been me, and I had seen a family in distress as part of that culture, Jay, I think it would have made more sense. The honorable thing to do would have been say, look, your, your betrothed is pregnant. She's obviously in distress. She doesn't need to be out on the road. Listen, you take my room and she can be with my wife. My wife will take care of her. Joseph, you and I, let's go out to one of those, you know, we'll, we'll go out and, and, and we'll make do here in the courtyard, but let's take care of your family. That would have been the honorable, human, decent thing to do. And let the expectant mother have the bed. The innkeeper failed hospitality. He failed at ministry. He failed at humanity. But he denied divinity. He thought he was rejecting a family. But Alexander, what he actually was rejecting was the incarnate Christ. But it didn't come with a big angel. It didn't come with a big moment. There wasn't a banner over Mary's head that said, hey, this is the Holy One. It wasn't like the medieval or the Renaissance paintings where there was this holy glow around her that you could just recognize it. Boy, I better take care of these people. It was a common event. We need to be careful, even as spirit-filled people, that if we don't miss the opportunity in daily life to minister to someone, because in ministering to them, the Bible itself says that at times we entertain angels unaware. And Jesus himself said, if you do it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. I, can I just be honest with you? I don't want to be a professional Pentecostal and move through this life and then find myself at the time of eternity and to have Jesus look at me and say, I came to you many times with opportunities, but you were too busy with what you thought was religiosity to minister to me. I want to be willing to get my sleeves rolled up. I want to be able to get dirt under my fingernails. I want to be able to, to give groceries to somebody. I want to be able to, to minister to somebody. I want to be able to, to move with compassion on someone. The second innkeeper. The second innkeeper speaks to that value today. It's a familiar story, one that we've heard recounted as a parable of the Good Samaritan. That's what we call it. But in actual point of fact, that's not how Jesus presents the story. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to show you a parable. Or the kingdom of heaven is like... That's how he introduces most of his parables. But in this case, what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, in response to this lawyer's question of who's my neighbor? Who do I have to take care of? What do I have to do? Who do I have to love? And, and how do I have to minister to people? Jesus says there was a certain man. Scott indicating that this story that we call the parable, it does have lessons for us, but it was a real person. The Jericho road that he was on dropped 3,600 feet over a space of 20 miles. It was a steep and narrow passageway 
that provided an ideal climate for bandits and robbers to sneak in and sneak out and to rob people before the law enforcement or the Roman government could prevent it. And Jim, as late as 1930, people on the road from from Jerusalem down to Jericho on this steep, narrow, rocky way were advised to not go on that road at night or to take money to bribe off the bandits because still in the 20th century, this was known as a very dangerous place to be. Before the Israeli government took over that area, then it was a dangerous place to be even 2,000 years later. And Jesus said that on this road, this man fell among thieves. Now, there are a lot of questions about this story. What was this rich man doing? Uh, he obviously, you know, he, 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 he was traveling this road, but usually in those times, people carried, they, they were in caravans or groups because they, they uh, were not supposed to travel alone because of the bandits and they would, they would gather together for strength. And so was there something about this man that made him travel alone? I don't know. That is, is unwritten in the story. And I think it's dangerous to argue from silence. But it's just, I just raise it as a question for you. Like the woman at the well that was a Samaritan woman that was alone. There was a reason she was alone. And this man on this road, maybe there was a reason perhaps. Maybe he was outcast or maybe he was friendless or maybe he was in between and didn't know people. Suffice it to say that he fell among thieves and he was unable to defend himself. And the Bible says that those thieves left him half dead. Setting is familiar. Somewhere along the journey of descent, someone who should have been well was broken. Somewhere between Jerusalem, this religious capital of the world, and Jericho, a symbol of victory, somebody got bruised and somebody got battered. The driver of the action is a Samaritan, but in his work of restoration, the Samaritan needed a partner. Now, hang with me. The Samaritan is a type of Christ. I told you that I believe this story actually happened, that it was a certain man and there was a certain Samaritan. And yet the Bible tells us that these things happen for our examples. The Samaritan is a type of Christ. And in John 8 and 48, Jesus was actually called a Samaritan by the Jews. He was not a Samaritan by heritage, but he was an outcast and the Samaritans were outcasts. Samaritans were despised and rejected because they were a hybrid people. They were half of Jewish heritage and half of Gentile nation heritage. And they had it mixed the Jewish religion with religions all around them. And so therefore they were despised by the Jews. Jesus himself was a hybrid person. He had mixed heritage. He was half God, if you will, and he was half man. More properly stated, he was all God and he was all man. On his mother's side, he was human enough to nurse at his mother's breast. But on his father's side, he was the divine creator of his mother Mary's body. On his mother's side, he spoke his first words in a carpenter's shop. But on his father's side, he spoke his words and words leaped into existence from the vast nothingness of space. On his mother's side, he hungered and thirsted. But on his father's side, he was the bread of life and living water that allows a person to never hunger and to never thirst again. On his mother's side, he was lost for three days as a 12-year-old in the temple. But on his father's side, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm telling you that Jesus was a God-man. He was a unique for all time, a historically significant 
An eternally effective uh, a composition of the Godhead moving into humanity in the incarnation. And just like the Samaritans were a hybrid people, Jesus was a hybrid person. The text says that the Samaritan set the bruised and broken man on his own beast, then poured in oil and wine. I submit to you that this oil is a type of the anointing of the Holy Spirit that is designed to flow in our lives. And the wine that he poured into those wounds is representative of the blood that is shed for our sins and the sins of others. Jesus is typified by the Samaritan. It's obvious who the injured person is in this story. That's whoever is broken by sin. That's whoever we meet. That's the people that get on your nerves at work. That's the people that live in your neighborhood that you don't like so well. Or it's the person who's lonely that you can't for the life of you remember your name, but you notice that at Christmas time, there are no lights out and there are not a lot of cars at their place. And they seem to be quiet at their house. It's the person that has been damaged by life that everybody talks about. It's, it's the person that hasn't been successful in their family. That's the bruised and broken person. And Jesus, Jesus is represented by the Samaritan. You know, it's interesting that the robbers and the religious had the exact same response to the broken. That the religious had no different response than the robbers. They both left the man half dead. They left him because he was half dead. The robbers will half kill you. The religious will pronounce you half dead. The priest went by and he was on his way to the temple. But you see, the, the issue is, now, remember, this guy's going this way down the road. This guy's going up from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's going the opposite way. And he's going up to serve in the temple. And if he touches a dead body, according to, uh, to Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, it's going to be seven days before he can be declared clean and he won't be able to participate in the religious ceremony. So, Jay, it's very important to this priest that he get to participate in his ceremony. So ceremony comes over charity. And, and standing in the robe of the priest means more to him than actually acting in the role of the priest. And so looking like somebody who represents God is much more important to him than actually representing God. So rather than rolling up his sleeve, and saving a life, he walks by and he says, I can't touch anything that's unclean. Can I just say right quick here, as Arlington United Pentecostals, could we please make a commitment that we're not going to be too holy to get down on somebody's level and we're not going to be so righteous that we can't minister to someone who needs repentance, that we're not going to be so holier than thou that we can't reach across a divide and reach to someone and say, the gospel is for me, but the gospel is also for you. Let's go be like the priest that's headed up and we're not afraid. To, we're so afraid to reach to somebody who's down and out. The Levite came closer. The Bible says that he came and actually looked on him. So he was a little bit better than the priest, but also he went on his way. And they say that one of the favorite tactics of the bandits of that time was that they would decoy. They would set out somebody and, and, and pretend like they were, they were ill or they were injured. And when you came over to assist them, then they would jump on you. You know, I, I face this dilemma sometimes at night. I'll be honest with you. I'm on I-40. I'm going 70 miles an hour. Somebody's there got their flasher lights on and, and nobody's with them. And I, and I just wonder if I stop, is it a trap? And we don't know, but perhaps this is what the Levite was thinking. Suffice it to say that he looked at him and he saw him, but he moved on. He didn't uh, want to risk 
the situation. He was concerned with his own safety. There are some times, and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to tell you whether to stop on I-40 or not, but I'm going to say this. There are circumstances where in order to help people spiritually, there are going to be some risk to your reputation. There are going to be some risk to your time. There are going to be some risk to uh, maybe your convenience. And there are going to be some circumstances where you're going to have to extend beyond yourself. And the Levite was not willing to do that. Let's don't be religious people that are not willing to extend beyond ourselves to minister to someone. And to minister to someone who has a need. The Samaritan was not that way. The Samaritan will pick you up and he'll bind up your wounds. The Samaritan will pay what it takes to accomplish your healing and your restoration. The Samaritan recognizes that someone who is half dead is also half alive. I want to make a very spiritual statement here that may sound so simplistic. Half dead is not all dead. We've all got some situations in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces that look like they're half dead, but half dead is partially alive. Our pastor, Pastor Ellingsworth, said it today. Just because you know something doesn't mean it's as real as what God has said. Sometimes the facts have to take a second seat in order to the principles of what God is doing and how God is at work. The fact was he was half dead, but the spiritual reality was he was half alive and he didn't need somebody who's too holy to roll up their sleeves and get involved in the situation. Thank God for Samaritans who are willing to reach down and minister to somebody. That's where you and I come in. It's where you and I come in. We picture ourselves as a Samaritan, but honestly, honestly, if the Samaritan is a type of Jesus, he is the one who was sent to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus found that man, if it, as, as it were, as it's the type of Jesus, Samaritan found him. And after expending his effort in compassion and skill, he brought the broken to a place he could trust. In verse 34, he brought him to an end. And that night he took care of him. But the next day he had to be on his way and he paid the innkeeper for being a partner in the restoration. Listen to me today. Listen to me. We cannot market our way into a 16,000 soul revival. We cannot plan our way into a citywide restoration of what God wants to do in Arlington. We cannot strategize our way into the revival that God wants to bring. But you hear me today, and I speak with a voice of authority. If we move ourselves into a position of trust with the Samaritan, and if the Samaritan knows that when he finds somebody that's broken, if he will bring them here, that we will take care of them for him, then buildings cannot contain what God will do. Because there are plenty of broken people, and Jesus knows where to find them. He's just looking for a group like you and like me that are willing to be innkeepers who will say, when you show up with somebody that's bruised, when you show up with somebody that's battered, when you show up with somebody that can't help us, but we can help them, we'll say, okay, we'll take it. He said, whatever you spend above this, I'll take care of it. I've got news for you today. Being part of revival and restoration is going to cost you. Revival is not about a tent. 
Revival is not about a series of meetings. Revival is not about a special speaker. Revival is not about advertisement. And all of those things could be part of a series of services. But re revival is really about is inconvenience. It means having your vehicle smell like cigarette smoke and giving yourself a headache from taking people to church service that don't yet have victory over that habit. It means having some family meals that are interrupted by having a guest in your home that you're fellowshipping with and you're working with them and discipling them. It means going to teach a Bible study on a weeknight when you'd rather be relaxing on the couch or watching a movie. It means sometimes you invest and that person you've been on rescuing will take advantage of you or walk away or they won't complete the journey. Not everybody's going to make it and it costs something to be a partner with a Samaritan. But Scott, he said it this way. He said, if this is not enough, I'll be back and I'll take care of it. I know one thing. I don't know who the Lord's going to send here. And I don't know what their needs are going to be. And I don't know how much it will cost you. I don't know how much we'll have to extend ourselves. I don't know if we're going to have a Hispanic ministry. I don't know if we're going to have a Somalian ministry. I, I have no clue of what Jesus is going to do in, in, in the detail after detail after detail. But I can tell you flat-footed with full confidence. If Jesus sends somebody here for restoration, he will pay the bill. He will take care of it. We'll have enough money. We'll have enough time. We'll have enough resources. You get involved with restoration and God will pay the bill. Ironclad promise from the Samaritan. Whatever you spend, he's going to take care of it. I've got a simple question for us today. What kind of establishment are we running here? Is this a five-star hotel? Or is this a hospital for souls? Is this a country club with a Christian covenant tacked onto it? Or are we open for business? For whomever the Samaritan drags in, half dead from the ravages of sin and the cares of life. Do we have a target demographic for a family that looks like us and sounds like us and is from our social educational strata and we can be comfortable with them? Or are we willing to say like Jesus did, whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely. I want to tell you today, I want to be a partner with a Samaritan. I want to be a partner with the one who is roaming to and fro and he's looking for whomever is broken that he can heal. I want to be an innkeeper that's not running a hotel but is claiming to be planning a church. We're responsible for a household. We've got a car, health, job, clothing, bank account, home, resources that the Samaritan is counting on with sharing with someone. You see, when Jesus comes to our daily lives today, he isn't coming in the form of a helpless baby about to be born. Nobody in their right mind would turn away Jesus in all his glory. But this time, rather than him being the weak one in need of help, Jesus is the one who brings with him the ones that needs assistance. He's knocking at the door and he wants to stay a while. And we would say, oh, come in, Jesus. It's an honor to have you. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. But that's not the only deal he makes. Because when Jesus comes, he brings with him somebody that is bruised and somebody that is battered and somebody that is broken. When we felt his presence in this place today, we responded as the bride of Christ always does. We lifted up our hands and we lifted up our voices and we clapped our hands and we sang out and we wept tears of joy as we worshiped and exalted and praised him. But what if he brings somebody home for dinner? What if he says, hey, there's somebody I need you to take care of. I, when I walk through the door, 
usually Jana is very happy to see me. And that may be because of the twins. And she always greets me and it's wonderful and all of that. And, and she says, oh, honey, I love you. It's good to see you. And so as my bride, she greets me and I enjoy that and I love that. But it's a different level of relationship when I walk through the door and I say, honey, uh, what's, what's for dinner tonight? Because I brought three people that are hungry. You see, when I bring needs with me, you understand where the level of relationship is. And when Jesus walks into our house, I want us to always say, Lord, whoever you brought and whatever they need and whatever we need to do to represent you to them, we are ready for this house to be used as you desire. What's your answer going to be today? I do not want this church to be typified by the rejection of the religious. I do not want our congregation to be powered by religiosity, but rather to be endued with the spirit of the Samaritan. I want to be his covenant partner today in restoring the bruised and the battered, the robbed and the ridiculed, the downtrodden and the depressed, the rejected and the remorseful, the forsaken and the forgotten, the enslaved and the embarrassed. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, unto us is committed the word of reconciliation. That, Jim, is the proclamation of the gospel. And I stand here today and I say that every sin can be forgiven, that every person can be reconciled, that every person can be restored, and that every person is not outside of God's love. But Paul also said, Brother Mark, that we have the ministry of reconciliation committed. We have the word of reconciliation, and that's a proclamation. But the ministry of reconciliation is the demonstration of the gospel. It's one thing to say it with our mouth, but it's another thing to sit down beside somebody and say, I'm praying for you. I value you. I love you. And I care about you. It's one thing to say it's all right, and, 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 and we want you to receive the love of God. But it's quite another thing for us to share the love of God today. I'm preaching to people that believe this. I'm not trying to browbeat you. I'm not trying to run you down, but I just feel a deep challenge in my own spirit from the word of God that says God wants to partner with us. He's going to bring some people that are awesome. He's going to bring some people that are not troublemakers. He's going to bring some people that are givers. He's going to bring some people that are lovely. And we see all those people already represented here today. But what if he does bring somebody that just annoys us? What if he does bring somebody that's struggling with a habit or an addiction? What if he does bring somebody that needs a little more extra work? Am I willing to partner with a Samaritan and say, I know it's going to take a while for this person to be well. But I believe the Samaritan will pay the bill. If I'll take care of him, God will do his part and God's going to help us. Would you stand with me today? I don't want to be like that first innkeeper. I don't want to be the one that says there's no room in my life for a situation that I'm uncomfortable with. And there's no room in my life for restoration. There's no room in my life for a little family that, that needs some help tonight. I don't want to be like that first innkeeper. I want to be like that second innkeeper. I don't know what his relationship with the Samaritan was, but the Samaritan's credit was good at that innkeeper's house. That Samaritan, all he had to do was say, here's two nickels and I'll pay the rest when I come back. I want us to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to have a relationship with Him where when He brings a need into my life that I trust Him enough that He'll take care of it. How strong is your gospel today? How strong is your faith? Can you stand flat-footed, Scott, and say, Jesus, whoever in this town needs help, I trust you that if you bring them in my path and you intend to minister to their wounds, that I trust you and I will partner with you. 
Do you, do you have that kind of faith, Alexander, that you're willing to befriend anyone that God has a design on? If the Samaritan drags them in, are you willing to believe that he can restore them and bring them to health? I'm telling you, that's the difference between proclamation and demonstration. That's the difference between the word of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation.